Okay, we're going to be reading in Luke chapter 22 today. And what, what's happened is Jesus uh, uh, started a discourse in the upper room. And so this is just hours before he is going to be crucified. And he started a discourse in the upper room. And that discourse then continued as they walked from the upper room, which is in Jerusalem, down into the Kidron Valley, across the brook Kidron, back up toward the Mount of Olives, toward the top of the Mount of Olives, so up on the hillside there. And halfway up on the hillside is the Garden of Gethsemane. And he finishes, in John chapter 17, he finishes with a prayer in, in, uh, in Gethsemane where he prays for his disciples. Now, interestingly, I want you to remember this. In that prayer, he refers to God in his prayer. And he refers to God as Father six times. Six times he re- as he's praying, he refers to God as Father. It's not common for him to pray to God and refer to God as the name God. He usually uses the term Abba or Father. Or Abba Father. Abba being the, the endearing term, like uh, analogous to, to our Daddy. Something like that. And I want, it, want you to remember this because when Jesus is in agony on the cross, he refers to God as God during a three-hour period between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. During that three-hour period, he, when he prays, he doesn't use the term Father. He uses the term God. And we'll come back to that. But here we are, in, and, and uh, uh, he's finished this discourse, and we're going to pick it up in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. So you see that it was his custom to go to the Mount of Olives. And this is how Judas knew to bring the authorities there to arrest him. So he's with 11 of his disciples because the 12th, Judas, is with the authorities and he's going to bring them to Gethsemane because he knew this was his pattern. People get in patterns where they go to certain places at certain times on certain days. And Judas knew that this was his custom to go to to Gethsemane to pray with his disciples. And so this is where he went. In verse 40, And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray. Okay, so I want to stop there a minute. So he comes with his 12 disciples. We are going to read in Mark just a minute. So this is talked about in detail in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Mark points out that he left eight of his disciples by the gate there in Gethsemane. He took three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. And he takes them a little further into the garden. And now the Garden of Gethsemane is not huge, like, like, say, Herman Park here. It's, it's, it's probably the size of this room. It's not a big place. And uh, um, so, he takes, he, so, he leaves eight of them, and he takes three. That makes eleven. And so, he takes three, a little ways in with him, and then he goes a stone's throw away from those three. So, he's going, what is that, twenty yards maybe, away from them, and he starts to pray. And it says that he knelt down and he began to pray. So Jesus knelt and he began to pray, saying, 
Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping from sorrow, saying to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not fall into temptation. So now let's look at, uh, let's look at another portion, uh, an, another portion in one of the other Gospels. And so let's look over at Mark chapter, chapter uh, 14. Mark chapter 14. Let's start reading from verse 32. Mark 14, verse 32. Then he came to the place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went out a little beyond them, and he fell to the ground, and he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he found them asleep, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer. And he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So, between this and then what's also written in Matthew, this is the picture. Jesus comes to the garden. He leaves eight of his disciples there by the gate. He tells them to watch. That was their task. He takes three in with him a little further, and he tells them both to watch. They're the watchmen, because there are people who are going to be coming out to get them, and to pray, to watch and to pray. He goes off a little distance, and he falls on his knees, and he starts to pray. After that, he falls down onto his face and continues the prayer. He prays for one hour. He comes back to his three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John were the three lead disciples. There, there were uh, three groups of four, and Peter, and James, and John were the small group leaders among them. And he says to them, couldn't you watch for one hour? So that tells us how long his prayer time was. Then he goes... Off and, and he tells them, pray that you don't fall into temptation. He goes back. He prays again the same prayer. He comes back. He finds them asleep. He says, you guys are still sleeping. You know, this gives me real hope. Because I don't know if you've ever tried to pray for a long time and then you've fallen asleep, especially after a long day. And remember, they had just had the Passover feast. This is like, you know, after Thanksgiving I mean, you just, you just got to sleep. And so Jesus is calling them into a prayer time and these guys are falling asleep. So he comes back and he sees them sleeping and he tells them, watch and pray. He goes and he prays again. Then he does prays a third time and then he comes back and they're falling asleep again. So this is the picture of what's going on. But Jesus says here, he says in, in, in verse 34 of Mark chapter 14, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Now, there are two reasons why Jesus, Jesus is deeply grieved. Two reasons. 
One of the reasons is revealed in the Gospels, and we'll get to that in a minute. And another one of the reasons is not revealed in the Gospels, but revealed in the Old Testament. So turn to Isaiah chapter 49. And so we've seen this before. In Isaiah, Isaiah 49, we've seen this type of thing before, where, where there are things that are revealed in the Old Testament which have not been revealed in the New Testament. And we have to go back and see what must have been going on in Jesus' life, that his soul had become deeply burdened, and as the scriptures put it, grieved. So this psalm, this uh, in Isaiah 49, not a psalm, but this prophet Isaiah is writing about the Messiah. This is a prophecy 700 years before the birth of Jesus, and that's what makes this book amazing. This book, this Bible, was written over a 1,500-year period with over 40 authors, and you have prophecies that are written that are then fulfilled. So 700 years before the events of what we're reading in the Garden of Gethsemane, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 49, you say, oh no, it was written afterward, it was, it was, it was all done by, by scribes, put this thing together. No, it cannot be. Because we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in the 1930s by Bedouins in Israel, the Dead Sea Scrolls found these little pieces and these predate the life of Jesus. And in there are written portions. In fact, the entire Old Testament is found there except the book of Esther, as well as many other surrounding documents. But the entire Bible is found there. Many portions of it duplicated. The portion that is most well documented is Isaiah chapter 53, which is the, 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 the crucifixion the coming crucifixion of the Messiah. That is the most documented piece. But this is also there, Isaiah 49. So we know, prior to the life of Jesus, these texts were there. And this is a prophecy concerning the life of the Messiah. And, it, and, and uh, uh, let's pick it up from verse 1, Isaiah chapter 49. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, <coughs> you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. So now the Messiah starts to speak prophetically. Verse 4, but I said, I have toiled in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Now, why would the Messiah say that? Because we see this. Here he was sent to bring Israel to God. And Israel has rejected him and rejected the Messiah. Here is what he has done. This is exactly what he, what's happened. This is what, what, what's happened here. And so you see that he, he says, I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. But then he goes on. Yet surely the justice to me is with the Lord. And my reward is with my God. So you see that he turns the whole thing around. You look at this. And it looked like great defeat. But that was not the case at all. That was not the case. It was not a, a time of great defeat. He says, I just commit this to the Lord. And now here's what God replies to him in verse 5. And now the Lord said, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to God so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in his sight, in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing 
that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So what does God the Father promise the Messiah? He says, yes, Israel has rejected you. But now I will make you Messiah to the nations. That is always meant to the Gentile world. And this is why. This is the period in which we live. It is the Gentile world that has come in the body of Christ. Come to salvation in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in this chapter how he will bring Israel back. He will succeed with Israel. But this is part of the reason why Jesus is in turmoil here. But look how he commits it to the Lord. He says, he said to him, that he had, lay, he had toiled in vain. He says, Yet surely the justice due to me, in verse 4, is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. This is something I want you to capture. How we take our frustrations and our cares and our pains and we commit them to the Lord. How we commit these right back to the Lord. Let me read to you what Watchman Nee has written, commenting directly on this passage. He says, Our Lord Jesus is never discouraged. He was sent here to bring Jacob to God, to gather Israel to him. But with what result? He did not appear, it it did not appear to have been successful. Indeed, by man's estimate, he was totally defeated, for Jacob did not return to God. Israel did not accept him. Instead, the Jews rejected Jesus and slew him as a criminal. Had we to live on earth rejected by men and apparently fruitless in service, It is more than likely that we should become aggrieved and cry out for justice. Not so the Lord. He had committed himself to the Father. And neither gain nor loss was able to touch him. He was careful about one thing only, to leave the vindication and the reward to the Father. If our justice is safe with God, our recompense from him is also sure. So what Jesus did is he did not strike back. He didn't come to kill Israel. He left the vindication with the Father. Jesus never picked up a sword. Jesus came. And they didn't come, but God was making a promise to him. There was another reason why he was distressed in the Garden of Gethsemane. The second reason is this. He says, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. The cup in the Old Testament always spoke of God's wrath. Always spoke of God's wrath. Some people have said he was distressed in the garden and in turmoil because he was about to die physically. And that cannot be never. None. It cannot be correct. Jesus was not afraid to die physically. He was... The the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. That was His purpose in coming. He had spoken to that many times. Turn to John chapter 10. If you look in John chapter 10, John chapter 10 and verse 17. John chapter 10 verse 17 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. It is for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. It was His plan all the time to lay down His life. Jesus was not distressed that He was going to have to die physically. That had nothing to do with it. That was not His distress. And in fact, if you look in John chapter 12, two chapters over, John chapter 12, verse 27, John chapter 12, verse 27, 
It says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I came to this hour. So Jesus is saying, I will never ask the Father to deliver me from death. He says, never, never. Jesus was not afraid to give his life. This was the whole plan of redemption. The Old Testament is filled with texts, with verses, with prophecies, prophecies that have been documented, prophecies that could not have been changed, prophecies where we have found documents that date back to before the life of Jesus. Changed to what? They were found before the life of Jesus. Scholars have said this repeatedly. Jewish scholars, Christian scholars have looked at these documents. What was recorded was Jesus was, the Messiah was going to come and to die for our sins on the cross. The the Old Testament puts, He will die for our sins on the tree. This was prophesied. You had to have the shedding of blood for the redemption of our sins. This was not troubling Jesus at all. He was ready to do this and He willingly did this. He said, I would never ask the Father not to do this. Some people have said it was because Jesus was afraid of a premature death, meaning that Satan was going to kill him prior to his getting to the cross. And that cannot be right. There is no chance of that, none whatsoever. Jesus was in total control of his life when a a band of guards comes at Jesus to get him. He says, I am. You're looking for me? I am. Boom. the, The guards were just forced onto the ground could not stand before him. Jesus was in total control. You look at this and in, in, turn back to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, we just read John chapter 10, verse 17. Verse 18 says this. He says, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. The, this commandment I received from my Father. Jesus is in total control as to when his life is going to be taken. Remember, we saw this, that the the Pharisees had said, let's not kill him on the Passover. They didn't want to kill him on the Passover. But Jesus, knowing he's the Lamb of God from the foundation of the world, he had to die as the Passover Lamb. On the Passover, he had to die. It was not the intent of the Pharisees to have him killed on the Passover, but Jesus forced their hand so that he would die on the Passover. He was in total control of laying down his life, of taking it up again. Jesus was not afraid of being being, uh, overcome, premature death, being killed before the cross. Jesus was in total control. That cannot be the reason. The reason why Jesus was in agony in this is because Jesus was about to die a spiritual death. There was no prophecy in the Old Testament that required Jesus to die spiritually. Only that He died physically. That is it. It is both the Old Testament and the New Testament are filled with this passage. It is by the shedding of blood that there is redemption. By the shedding of blood, there is forgiveness of sins. His physical death on the cross was going to pay our price. His physical death on the cross was going to pay our price. There was no prophecy that he had to die spiritually. So here, he's in agony with the Father. Father, if this cup can be taken from me, take it from me. Because if he didn't die spiritually, still we would have our redemption. Still we would have our redemption because it was his physical death that paid the price for us. 
It is his spiritual death that he's wrestling with God about. This is what the wrestling with God is about. And he says, Father, if this could be taken from me, but not my will, but thine be done. So Jesus prayed that he would not have to go through this spiritual death. What was God's answer? God's answer was no. You will go through the spiritual death. Just because we don't receive an answer to prayer does not, uh, just because we receive an answer no to prayer does not mean that we're walking outside the will of God. Jesus was not walking outside the will of God, nor is it unspiritual to say, Father, do this thing if it be your will. This is precisely what Jesus did. He yielded his own will to the Father's will. He asked the Father to be be delivered from this spiritual death. So from the hours of 3 p.m., so Jesus was crucified, the first three hours he's paying this price, but then three hours, from 3 p.m. then to 6 p.m., so he was crucified right about noontime, he, or, 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 he, sometime between 9 a.m. and noon, but between the hours of 3 p.m. and 6 p.m., he underwent spiritual death. Well, what does this mean? This is separation from God. This is the state of the unbeliever right now. The state of the unbeliever, if you have not received Jesus in your heart, this is spiritual death. You are separated from fellowship with God. This is not me saying it. This is what the Bible says. The Bible, in fact, puts it even more glaringly. It says that you are a slave to sin, unable to overcome your sin, if you are separated from God, if you have not received the Messiah. It is the state that we were in prior to salvation. This is what Jesus was praying three times where He returned to the Father to express this. Because His dying this spiritual death, God was teaching Jesus something. It says He learned obedience through the things He suffered. He was separated from a relationship, something that He had never known. He was not like us that He came some later point in His life into salvation. From the time He was incarnate, He was filled with the presence of God, with the fellowship of God. September, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, um, November 7th, 1977, I received Jesus in my heart as a college student, as a freshman in college. On that day, I was all alone in my room. Somebody had shared Jesus with me in August. I had talked with more Christians between August and November. November 7th, 1977, all alone in my room. I fell down upon my knees and I said, Lord, forgive me because I am a sinner and come into my life. And at that moment, I started to feel this burden start to lift from me. And I felt the forgiveness of God come upon me and somebody was standing in my room and I opened my eyes to see who it was and I didn't see anyone. But Jesus was standing there. His, his presence was so delightful. I wasn't scared. I wasn't frightened by His presence. It was a delightful presence and I felt forgiven and I felt a oneness with His presence and I opened my eyes to see, who is this guy? And I couldn't see anyone. His presence was so overwhelming that on that day, I said, I never want to be out of His presence again. I never want to be away from Him. And so, so when, when this young man talked to me about two weeks later after that time, He saw me on the floor and I didn't tell anyone because I come from a Jewish background in New York City. And I I didn't know what to say to anyone. 
And he said, asked me, he says, have you received Jesus in your heart? I said, I think I have. Why do you ask? He says, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. Something happened to me that day. And my question to him is, how can I maintain this fellowship with God? How can I maintain this fellowship? And he said, if you read the scriptures every day, it will be maintained. If you don't, it won't. And I started to get in a pattern of reading the Scriptures. And shortly after that, I got in this pattern of reading the Bible every day of my life. For 37 years, every day of my life. I start the day with reading the Scriptures. I'll read through it again at midday. And at nighttime, I'll go through and start reading it again. And I pick up where I left off the day before. Work my way through from Genesis to Revelation. Done, I start again. Because I want to maintain this this relationship. Look at what grieved Jesus the most. He wasn't that worried about about Israel. It, it, It saddened him. But he wasn't discouraged. He didn't lose his courage. Because he knew the vindication was with God. God was going to draw Israel. He knew that this was the beginning of the Gentile kingdom. Of most of you coming to him. This was the beginning of this. He wasn't afraid of dying. That didn't bother him at all. He had come to die. He wasn't going to ask the Father not to die. This was the whole plan of salvation. He wasn't worried about Satan killing him before or after. He was in total control. What concerned him was separation from God. And this is what ought to concern you if you don't know Him. This is what ought to concern you. Here is this man wrestling with his Father. Because of the potential separation that was coming to him. And he was saying, Lord, if that cup could be spared from me, it won't change the prophecy, it won't change the plan of redemption. That's what concerned him. The separation from the Father. And what will happen is believers will go weeks, months, years sometimes without fellowship with God. And their life then has no substantive difference from anyone else in the world. And it bothers them little. Oh, you know, I haven't been doing much with my relationship with God. I'm like, huh? I mean, how can you just say that so flippantly? Doesn't that destroy you? If I ever thought that I would lose the closeness of this relationship, I mean, I would do whatever is needed to recover this. If I've been really tired and, and traveling and go through many things and been, haven't been able to spend as much time in the Word as I would like, I start feeling it. Within a day, I'm feeling it like, Lord, I, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm aloof from Your presence. And I just got to get my Bible and go and spend some time in prayer and start praising Him and getting close to God again. Because once you have lived in His presence and seen how good it is to be in fellowship with God, you hate the thought of being without it. I would never want to lose this. Never. Once you have tasted of the goodness of God, it is a frightening thing to be without it. To think that if I had to wake up one morning and I wouldn't be able to talk to God, I wouldn't be able to have that relationship with my Father. I mean, that to me would be frightening. This is why sometimes when I share the Gospel with people, they're worried that that, that, uh, one young man, he said to me, he says, what if I become a Christian and I don't like it. What if I become a Christian and I don't? I say, oh, don't worry about that. You give me 12 weeks, and if you still don't like it, you go back to your old ways. Just forget it. Just go back like it never happened. 
And I saw him a few weeks into this. I said, tell me how it's going. I mean, the guy was just beaming. He said, you know, you can go back if you want to. You can go back. Because I have no fear. Nobody is going back to the world. Nobody wants to go back to the world. Nobody wants to go back to what it was. Devoid of having a relationship with God. You walk 12 weeks in Bible study and in prayer. You will never want to go back. And if it doesn't hit you, that when you start drifting from Him and moving aloof, remember, He's still there. His umbrella is still there. You choose to walk out. If that doesn't affect you, you know it does. You know it does. Being away from His presence affects you. And it draws you back. This was the thing that Jesus was so frightened about having to go through. This was the thing that was, He was wrestling with. And that is why on the cross He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's asking why. He wasn't saying, my God, my God, why do I have to die? Duh. I know that. That's the whole plan. I'm slain from the foundation of the world. It's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you see, in this time period, he's calling God, God. No longer his father. No longer Abba. That's the way he always prayed. Abba. Abba, Father. That's the way he prayed. But on the cross, when he was forsaken, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was that forsaking that he dreaded. That's the cup that he wanted to have passed from him. That is the cup. That's the cup that he wanted passed. Don't let, as a believer, don't let this presence, this fellowship with God leave you. If you have been wayward, in your walk, if you have been aloof from the Lord, come back to His presence. Spend some time alone. Just grab your Bible and just get alone. Read a few chapters and then just fall on your knees and beat your breast and say, God, forgive me. Lord, come back and give me the sense of your fellowship, the sense of your presence. Give me the sense of your presence. If you don't know the Lord, come to Him. The one thing that concerned Jesus was separation for a moment, for a three-hour period from God. Come to Him. Come to Jesus. Experience what life with Him is like. You pray a prayer that sounds something like this. Lord, forgive me because I am a sinner and come into my life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And I'll tell you, if you don't like it, give it 12 weeks. If you don't like it, go back to the world. But you come into His presence, you receive Him. If you don't like it, go back to the world. I've never known anybody say, yeah, you know, I walked with God so closely for 12 weeks, and I hate it. I'm just going back to the world where I was more comfortable. Never, never will you want to turn back. You come to the Lord. Let's close with, with Acts. We're going to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. There, uh, we're going to start reading from verse 30. Acts 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness, through a man whom He has appointed. 
having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. So God has fixed a day. God has fixed a day in which judgment will come and it says that He's calling all people everywhere to repent. Repent means this. This is repentance. Where you're going in one direction and you turn 180 degrees in the other direction. Repentance means turn from your current way, turn to the Lord. He says He's fixed a day in which a judgment will come and He will judge the world. It says He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world. I'm not going to judge the world. You're not going to judge the world. Jesus will judge the world. God will judge the world. He will judge the world in righteousness. His judgment is going to be righteous. Through a man. I'm not the man. You're not the man. Jesus is the man. Through whom the world is going to be judged. This man who he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Jesus from the dead. God has raised Jesus from the dead. And I don't have to convince you of that. The Bible is sufficient and His Spirit does the convincing. God has demonstrated this to the world and He has furnished proof to all men that He's raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus has raised from the dead. And that's why the Bible says that you confess Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Abba, Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. And I pray, Lord, for the believers here, for the Christians who are here, who may have undergone discouragement or are discouraged. Father, let their vindication be with God. Lord, You pick them back up, I pray Thee. May their vindication be with God. Strengthen them, I pray. Strengthen them. May they learn as Jesus did to accept that the vindication is with God. That though disappointed, they would not be discouraged. As our Lord was disappointed that Israel didn't come when He witnessed to them. But He was not discouraged. Father, I pray that You would do a great thing through their lives. And Lord, I pray that You would take believers here and that they would be fearful and they would mourn if they step away from God's presence if they wander from Him, without hurriedly coming back and saying, Lord, refresh me through Your Word. And Father, for the unbelievers here, draw them, I pray Thee, draw them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Turn them to You, I pray. Turn them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that they would pray this day with me right now. Father, forgive me because I am a sinner Forgive me and come into my life. Wash me clean by the blood of Jesus and fill me with your Holy Spirit because I believe Jesus is Lord and that He's risen from the dead. For the glory of God. Amen.